could the defense be, no, this is just how this person is to everybody. They, they, they are an equal opportunity jerk to, to everybody. You don't get to take the everybody knows that this person misbehaves. And so I think you could say that's just my character. That's how I communicate with others. But the reality is you can't really do that. It's not appropriate in that work environment. It used to be you had to have a continuous pattern of behavior that was so egregious that it caused somebody to feel harassed or subject to discriminatory acts. Since 2016, it can be one incident. It just has to be a doozy. Consistency here is key. I say, here's a shield and we want to put our boards behind it. You are stepping in front of that shield and taking all the arrows. If you don't properly enforce the governing documents with the very people who are responsible for that enforcement. What you're actually suggesting, I think, is to a certain degree, it is healthy for boards to put their head in the sand and not be exposed to a lot of these issues because then they're not going to be necessarily liable for them. And it's embarrassing that you said that. It's twice as embarrassing that I'm agreeing with that. Most people are not equipped to understand the seemingly endless facets of an HOA. That's why we're here to help you become uncommonly prepared to serve your HOA. Whether you're a board member or a manager, join us in the Uncommon Area. Welcome to the Uncommon Area. I'm Matthew Holbrook, and this episode is all about how to protect an HOA from legal liability related to fair housing, harassment, and or discrimination. And here to uh, help us talk about this is Sandra Gottlieb of Swedelson and Gottlieb. And so glad that you can join us for this episode. I know this is something you have a lot of experience in. I do. Uh, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being included in such a great program and being able to provide education to our boards and managers. Yeah, well, great. I, I, I think this is probably one of those things that you wish you didn't have a lot of experience in, but it is a, a natural thing that comes up in HOAs. It is true. And uh, more so than any of us would like to believe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive in then. Um, I think maybe one of the places we can start is uh, historically, I think a lot of boards look at interactions where there's disputes between homeowners um, as that's just a neighbor to neighbor dispute right. and um, let those issues be addressed and resolved between those two neighbors. But there there might be some of these discrimination, harassment, and or fair housing issues that could come into play. Maybe you could start off by addressing that. So I think that a lot of comfort came from that for boards to have that as a position, because in 1966, the Civil Rights Act, which is Article 8, specifically defined what was discrimination, what was discrimination in housing, and it really was not all that inclusive for associations. Over time, however, in amendments to the Civil Rights Act, there were descriptions of how somebody became a housing provider. And the definition for housing provider included anyone who provided services in a housing center. So an HOA is a housing provider in that kind of a Exactly, which is sort of hard to believe since we are not really, we're not leasing it, we're not selling it, we're just, so to speak, managing it, yet we are included in that. And so in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, it became an uphill battle to really get our boards to 
to understand, and understandably, no judgment there, that this applies to you and you need to be really careful about how you communicate with each other or with homeowners and with managers. So when you say the this, you're talking about specifically the Civil Rights Act or the, the these these additional um, realities of the Fair Housing Act and, and discrimination laws and harassment We're talking laws. about the Fair Housing Act, but we're talking about different iterations of it. So okay. in 2016, and this is what really brings this all together, we had an amendment to of a regulatory code that deals with and defines who can have uh, a cause of action for harassment or discrimination. And it turns out it can be your employees and mine. It can be, so the vendor's employees, which includes the managing agent. So does the board have to intercede when we're at a, a board meeting and the manager is literally being harassed or harangued by somebody? And the answer is yes, they must. It's one of the things that is required to take action. Not what the ultimate decision is on that action, but that you're required to take action to at least investigate it and make a decision. I have a Sandraism. And that is the decision to do nothing is different than doing nothing. Because all kinds of case law dealing with harassment and discrimination allows the board to be wrong so long as everything they do until that time is done correctly and meeting their fiduciary duties and the business judgment rule. So in this case, the doing it correctly would be at least doing an investigation, looking into the situation and taking any appropriate action to remedy that harassment situation. Correct. So um, just from a from a legal standpoint, um, you said there was an amendment in 2016. Correct. We're talking about an am amendment to the Fair Housing Act? It's, it's an amendment to the Fair Housing Act and the regulations that come from the Fair Housing Act. And these are, this is a federal act? It is a federal act, so correct. So this would apply to all states? It does. So the amendments in 2016 actually had to do with HUD, the Housing and Urban Development, and its application in two capacities that really affect associations. One is residents' ability to live in a hostile-free, harassment, discriminatory-free living environment. That's now a cause of action. And employees are uh, guaranteed a right to not work in a situation or an environment where they are subject to harassment. All right, so let's just um, kind of frame this. Uh, we have an obligation of an HOA board of directors to pay attention to, we'll start off with, um, issues that might be related to harassment, both for the residents who live in their community, as well as anybody who might be construed as an employee, which would include employees of vendors that might be um, employed there. And we think very quickly about employees of a management company, but that theoretically could also apply to your landscape company, to your um, security company, um, anybody who might have a presence there um, in the community where there might be issues relating to potential harassment. So we recently had a situation where a board member, regrettably, was really um, going off on a landscaper's employee and accused the landscaper's employee of keeping plants and a tree in his truck that were meant for and paid for by the association. He had revised plans from the managing agent that were signed off by the board president, but this board member was not accepting that as a response, and this employee reported to his own company, the HR division, that he was being harassed on site, and then it became the association's problem to deal with. Does the harassment specifically have to be tied to a protected class? 
Well, it has to be applied to a protected class, but there are so many protected classes on a federal level that literally everybody is part of a protected class. So there's no difference, legally speaking, between harassment and somebody just being a jerk. Uh there is a, a shade of gray in there as to what is a jerk, but one of the things that came out of this 2016 amendment is some other amendments that dealt with the jerk issue. And it used to be you had to have a continuous pattern of behavior that was so egregious that it caused somebody to feel harassed or subject to discriminatory acts. Since 2016, it can be one incident. It just has to be a doozy, but it can be one incident. And this employee for the landscape company said that was my incident. It went and attacked my entire character and my ability to perform my job. I always have merchandise in my truck. So is it possible, um, and this is me showing my ignorance on this, is it possible that someone's pattern of being a jerk might actually be a defense? So in other words, if somebody is just a jerk to everybody, um, and, uh, and then a claim is made of harassment, could the defense be, no, this is just how this person is to everybody. They, they, they are an equal opportunity jerk to, to everybody. So it's really funny that you asked that question because that was one of the things that two of the board members said that this other board member is like, come on, he's always like that. Everybody who works here or works for us knows that. It's like, you are a master planned community. You don't get to take the, everybody knows that this person misbehaves. And so I think you could say that's just my character. Or that's how I communicate with others. But the reality is you can't really do that. It's not appropriate in that work environment. So when it comes to issues of harassment, that's, uh, I guess what I'm hearing is her, the category of harassment is specifically separate from the category of discrimination in the sense that discrimination, you, you, you really, it would seem to me, you have to tie that very directly to a protected class, whereas harassment might be a little bit more broad. Harassment can really pick up a number of different categories. So I think that's actually a great way to explain it. The two overlap consistently, sure. but I do think that um, harassment is probably a milder topic uh, with less definitive points to it, where in discrimination, that conduct can be explained and tied to a class and specific conduct. So I think the main takeaway on this portion of this conversation is specifically, I would imagine this would apply to board members in this portion of what we're talking about, that your behavior actually matters uh, towards uh, employees of vendors who service the association. And that if you have what we might call bad behavior at a certain point that can fall into categories of harassment and or discrimination and expose the association to liability. All of that I agree with. The, the phrase at a certain point is a bit problematic because what I say to other board members is you are now responsible for that conduct. So we don't really get to play it out to the a certain point because you should know better and sure. the law says you should know better and you're right. going to be held accountable for that. I do have a story uh, from here. I'm going to a hearing of a 80-year-old guy who has twice harassed two paraplegic women who are married to each other uh, as they move in their wheelchairs across the lobby saying really disgusting things to them. And everybody at the beginning said, I didn't know about it at first. He's just like that. He sits in the lobby all afternoon. He's just like that. But 
these owners didn't feel like it was okay for him just to be like that. And my board really has jumped in and said, unacceptable. And this is somebody who's a former board member who's getting on in his years, but they recognize they have to do something about this in order to protect themselves, those two owners, and the association. So in that case, we're now moving this from the behavior of board members actually into the behavior of individual residents and the board member could have board members could have obligations to address those issues as well. That's correct. And so uh, one issue that I've had repeatedly is somebody will be a neighbor, whether it's in a townhouse condominium association or planned development, and neighbors don't like each other, adjacent neighbors. And we had a community where somebody was having a barbecue on a Sunday, and they were playing Latinx music, and their family was Hispanic from different places, and the neighbor next door kept yelling at them to not turn the music down. Go back to where you came from. Where do you think and who do you think you are? And it was just horrific, horrific behavior. Of course, everybody that was there that lived in that house, and I think this has some relevance, but only a bit. We're all born in the United States. And so it was such an it was such an adversarial act of discrimination, and the neighbor had no remorse whatsoever. So clearly despicable behavior, but this raises so many questions for me with regard to the legal obligations of the association and like where does that line be drawn? So you have two neighbors, somebody's having a party in there on their property, and somebody next door is saying things to them that can be construed as harassment just between the neighbors. So common area is not even involved in this equation. Correct. Um, Where does the line get drawn? Because you like take a step back and what if it's a phone call from one neighbor's house to another? What happens if it's a phone call from the, some one neighbor is calling from work. They're not even on association property calling somebody else at their place of work. It has nothing to do with the association other than they also happen to live next to each other. Like at what, at what point does the is the board responsible for stepping in and mediating the despicable behavior from one resident to another? Excellent question. Uh, the answer is known or should have known. So if this was going on by telephone, unless either one of them are repeating it to other parties, we don't know about it. This has all become very convoluted with the advent of social media. Yeah, And I don't know what your position is on this, but um, we tell our boards to stay off of next door, not only because it panders to people who are not even in your community, but people tend to say things that could have legal consequence. And if a board member is on next door, just for example, and there's a communication by that family member who was attending and heard all these anti-Latinx comments, that board member seeing that information now has a duty to convey that to the other board members so they can make an informed decision if they need to do something. It all ties together and it can make you very nervous in managing your associations and providing legal representation because we don't know what we don't know. So two things about that. First of all, what you're actually suggesting, I think, is to a certain degree, it is healthy for boards to, this will sound negative and I don't mean it to sound that way, but to just put their head in the sand and not be exposed to a lot of these issues because then they're not going to be necessarily liable for them. And it's embarrassing that you said that. It's twice as embarrassing that I'm agreeing with that. Yeah, no, I, I, that's what I'm hearing. Um, 
So um, this also goes to the issue that I think a lot of board members have a misconception based on what you're saying, because I have heard board members say things like, I'm participating on social media and making comments, but I put a disclaimer saying, I am saying this sentence not as a board member, but as a resident of the community. And then they go and say something that might be unpleasant or unkind to somebody else. Um, if that's the case, um, I'll just play this out, that I say, I'm doing this not as a, a board member, I'm doing this as a resident. And I say something inappropriate to somebody else in that capacity. In my capacity as a board member, I still know that I said that, not in my capacity as a board member. So now I'm obligated to address that and notify the rest of the board theoretically. Theoretically, you are. Is, and, and am, I, am I thinking about that uh, accurately? Yes, but the problem is you are never not a board member. From the moment you're on the board, even when you're off the board, remember your fiduciary duties are ongoing. That's how you get protection under the DNO policies for acts after you are no longer on the board. And we certainly want our board members to have protections. Sometimes things happen inadvertently and we have to clear them up. And they're really intent is missing, but the action still happened. And we need to be very, very clear with our boards that they don't really get to act in a homeowner capacity. And I do have board members all the time saying, that doesn't seem fair to me. I have my First Amendment rights as a board member to speak and I, as a homeowner. And I'm agree with that. But when you're a board member, your first loyalty is to the corporation. But I'm hearing it, you go even a step further than that, because yes, as a board member, you don't want to be engaging in anything that could ultimately be um, grounds for somebody making a claim of discrimination or harassment. Um, but you're putting the standard at, if you're a board member and you are aware of anybody in the community doing that, you have an obligation to step in in that regard. So it's, it's, don't do that as a board member, but if even if you do do it as a board member, you're liable as a board member, whether you are acting as one or not, and you're liable because anybody in the community who behaves in that way could be subjecting the association to liability if the association, the board, knows of it. Right. All of that's correct, but you add that duty to investigate to that equation, and you realize the association has to do something about this. Sure every time they're exposed to it. And the problem with not doing it when it is a board member is how does the board engage in enforcement of our other owners if they're not doing it with their board members? So uh, I guess uh, at this point, it's, uh, it, it brings us to asking for some practical guidance. Um, if you're a board member in a community of 500 homes, there's 500 families living there, there's going to be tension, there's going to be bad behavior. Um, board members live in those communities. They're going to hear about bad behavior amongst their neighbors. Right. Um, how do they know where that line is that, okay, I, I, as a board member now, I have to go and investigate every single time I hear somebody just acting badly? So I think that we have to look at the standards. There's different kinds of harassment, like quid pro quo harassment, which is this for that. So I'll give you an extra cabana if you do such and such for me. It usually has a sexual connotation. You hear that and substitute that fact pattern for any other this for that, that has to be immediately investigated um, because it, it just engages in acts of discrimination and harassment on the crossover that you were referencing earlier. Uh, 
But in a, in a community of 500 homes, you're right, you're going to hear bad behavior all the time. It's really important, and I know you know this, Matthew, that we really educate our managers on this so that when they hear this at board meetings or they are in the community, that they can go back to the board and say, hey, we heard this happened. Have there been any complaints? Do you want us to do anything about it? And it may be a situation where that conversation between management and the board is enough to be documented that the information they had at that moment was not enough for them to have to go any further. And so I think that's a really important way to look at it as well. Because you're right, you're going to see bad behavior all the time. We're humans, we do it. What I'm also hearing from you is part of the price of being a board member is that you need to not, uh, as far as you possibly can, not get yourself entangled in even what we might call neighbor-to-neighbor disputes or any type of um, confrontation or, um, I I don't know, a a conflict with uh, other homeowners in the community. And part of the price is just step away from that altogether because almost any of those situations, you might be exposing the whole association to potential liability. Yes, and and the truth is, I've heard you teach on what I'm going to say right now, and that is that you shouldn't be walking around as a board member talking with the homeowners about association business. You should be inviting them to come to a board meeting or request a meeting with the board in executive session, not necessarily a hearing, but so that everybody can hear everything at the same time and operate under the one voice rule. And, and I think that really applies here as, as well, um, because I hear that all the time. I live here and I'm walking in the community and somebody wants to discuss that with me. You've now accepted the responsibility to calculate whether or not that is something that's actionable and whether or not that is something that the board has to investigate at that moment. But it goes even beyond association business, if I'm hearing you correctly. Like if I'm a board member and I get into some type of a dispute with my neighbor over anything, and it rises to a point of some type of conflict, that potentially is something that somebody could claim is a, is a form of harassment, even, even aside from any association business. Absolutely, especially since one incident now can arise to that. I can tell you that situation with the party of the Latinx family uh, was one incident, but it was egregious. It was absolutely egregious. This incident about the hearing that I'm going to this afternoon also egregious. Under the federal law, the violations are so clear, and this happened more than once. So it, it isn't just association business, it's living. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the association business, it would seem to me that there are issues relating to this as far as even non-compliance enforcement. Um, somebody could have a re- receive a violation for something where they're in non-compliance with their governing documents and make a claim that I'm being singled out in some way. Do you have any comments as to how a manager and or a board can protect themselves from those types of claims? As I, I will tell you that in today's environment, um, those claims happen all the time. And my answer to that is really simple, and that is everybody gets treated the same. Violations are violations. Uh, and a second Sandraism I have is use it or lose it. If you have rules and regulations or even provisions in your CCNRs that you are not enforcing consistently, then you need to think about whether or not that should go out to the members for a vote on removing it. Because if you don't enforce equally, you really are setting the association up for a significant hit 
uh, of acting in a harassing or even a discriminatory manner. What about looking the other way for a board member uh, um, that on a, on a potential violation when maybe you're enforcing that with everybody else? <clears throat> so uh, you just can't do it. We have an association that uh, the board did an excellent job in having architectural guidelines drafted for the installation of hard surface flooring. Worked with a renowned company to come up with the specifications, uh, hired an architect to review all applications. Uh, this is in a horizontal and vertical community. And uh, the board president put in his floor without an application and uh, needless to say, was his unit was over another unit, and the exposure to the association was significant. I, uh, shockingly, the carrier paid out significant sums of money uh, because they said that the exposure and liability of the association in litigation is greater than their interest in saying that was clearly not within your capacity to do that as a board member. But it created this hostility and inequity in the association that impaired the ability to enforce that well-drafted policy that they were literally enforcing with everybody yeah. else. What about just on a really practical level? And maybe this is one of those cases where it's it doesn't rise to the level of, of um, being substantive, but maybe not, so I'll ask. Um, what if about something as innocuous as violation letters about putting away your trash cans after trash pickup? And they have to be put away by a certain time. The manager drives the community and they find 48 homes where their trash cans are left out. And so they prepare these 48 letters, but one of them is the board president. And the manager says, I'm not gonna send the board president a letter on this. I'm just gonna call the board president and say, hey, I noticed this, um, not sending you a letter, but just wanted to give you a heads up because I'm addressing this with 47 other homes. You see uh, uh, an issue with um, a manager treating the board president a little bit differently in that kind of a scenario? I really do. I do see a problem with that because if their neighbor is one of the other 47 homeowners and they got a letter and they know that their trash can was right next to the board president's trash can, we're all going to be paying a price for that. Yeah. No. So it's innocuous, I get it. No. But the reality is that it's our responsibility to make sure that in protecting the corporation and its interests, that we act equal as best we can with all of our owners at all times. And when it comes to architectural applications, if there is an application that is made to accommodate some type of a disability, the association and the, the board, the architectural committee, needs to take that into consideration as well. Absolutely. Just to use your example of trash cans, if somebody is disabled, they may not be able to get their trash can in by 6 p.m. the day of trash pickup. And that may be because the person who might provide them assistance in doing that won't be there till 9 a.m. the next morning. So if somebody receives that letter and says that they are disabled and are requesting an accommodation uh, as an exception, so to speak, to the rules, that has to be made for them. And that will keep the association from being impacted negatively by any type of litigation or claims by this owner. But remember, we have to do the accommodations and frankly, in a civilized society should be doing that. Yeah. No, that's, that's super helpful. Um, what about religious expression in somebody's front yard or, um, in the front of their house? Uh, how should an association think about those kinds of issues? 
they have to think about them equally. So if you can allow Christmas trees, you have to allow menorahs. If you are going to allow expressions on front doors to ward off evil, you're going to have to allow mezuzahs in doorways. And it definitely is a different concept about uh, when you have shared living environments like condominium associations, and we know that clearly that doorway is common area, that mezuzah is going to go in that doorway. The expression to ward off evil is going to be on that front door, and we need to figure out how inclusively we're going to accommodate that. How we do that is by including in our rules and regulations, have specific requirements, have specific guidelines for installation and removal if we're talking about Christmas decorations or religious symbols on a lawn. Be mindful that different people have different religious periods of time. Associations get in trouble all the time when they say all holiday decorations have to be off by January 2nd. Well, Kwanzaa might not be over by January 2nd. Roman Orthodoxy uh, may not be over until the middle of January. So we really need to be mindful so that we're equal with everyone. Is there any standard that a board can weigh as to what would be considered religious expression? So to go to an extreme... What if somebody says, my religion is the Dallas Cowboys and I worship the Dallas Cowboys and so I want to put Dallas Cowboys paraphernalia on my front door and my front lawn. Um, can the board say, no, that, that doesn't count? That doesn't count because we have some guidance in both federal and various state laws that uh, define specifically that you have to be have a belief in an organized and accepted religion, organized and accepted. So if it is a fly-by-night group of three people who are sitting around um, singing the praises of the Dallas Cowboys and that with religious fervor, it does not count. Okay. So there has to be some, I guess, societally um, recognized or accepted um, statement of, of, of a religious organization. Absolutely. Um, that, yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Um, so I want to also ask about amenities, and there's a couple of angles to this. Um, uh, amenity reservations and what an association approves or doesn't approve, but then also how an association um, uh, withholds amenity usage as, I guess for lack of a better way to put it, as, as punishment for violations or not paying assessments or whatever it might be. So maybe we can address, address both of those and um, uh, maybe start off with just amenity usage as far as can an association put restrictions in general on how amenities can be used? And then as they do that, what should they have in mind with regard to potential discrimination claims? So again, even-handedness is always going to be the key, that everybody is treated the same way. Uh, I think that there absolutely can be rules and regulations for amenity usage because not everybody looks at the, their obligation to maintain the premises and treat it with respect the same way. And so I really appreciate a well-crafted set of rules and regulations. Um, not, when I say well-crafted, I don't mean overly strict, but allows for the enjoyment of the property without allowing for any of its destruction. So I think that, yes, and I think a well-organized and run association should have such policy, big policy person. Could an association restrict the use of alcohol, let's say, in the clubhouse? They can, yes. So what if a group wants to use, a homeowner wants to hold an event in the clubhouse 
and they want to use it for some type of a religious expression that involves alcohol, how does an association sort that out? So if they have rules uh, and prohibitions on alcohol in the clubhouse, they really don't run into the discrimination issue there because they've already established that there is a basis for doing that concern for whatever the concern might be, youth host liability for the association knowing or themselves serving or selling alcohol or knowing that the owner is doing that. So you really have to have the established policy in place before that inquiry comes in. So the claim that somebody might make, uh, this is part of my religious expression, you have to allow an exception for me, would not hold up in that scenario. Not if, in they, that scenario. if they had that as kind of a blanket rule that they were evenly enforcing. Correct. Okay. And then what about situations with uh, amenities where the amenity usage or the right to that amenity is withdrawn because of a a violation enforcement or um, non-payment of assessments or whatever it might be? I think it's an excellent idea to use that with amenities because it is difficult many times to get people's attention that this is not acceptable behavior. It's not part of the governing documents, whatever those governing documents are. And you chose to live here. And if you choose to live here, this is what is required of everybody that lives here. And so I think taking away amenities, making sure to be mindful of what the governing documents say. Some say 30 days, some say 45, some have no limitations. But I think that courts look at the duration and the severity of the complaint. So if a board says absolutely no alcohol, they have a policy, they don't let anybody else do it, there's alcohol served, somebody is hurt, and the homeowner's guest sues the association, they will be in a defensible position. We want that. That scorecard comes into the association's favor, even if their owner said, or the resident, that's an expression of my religious beliefs. And I would imagine that if the board is using um, the restriction of access to amenities as part of their leverage on gaining non-compliance enforcement or payment of assessments or whatever it might be, that uh, I would expect your input is they need to be very cognizant of being even-handed in that application so that there aren't any discrimination claims in that regard. Absolutely. So there has to be consistency there. Even going back to if it's one of the board members who might be falling into a pattern where with other homeowners, they have enforced that in that way. Right. And there's always an issue with alcohol at the pool and what that would look like also if your facility has a pool and making sure that we're consistent with no, no alcohol at the pool. The sign says so, our policies say so, and enforcing that. And it's difficult when it's hot and it's Sunday afternoon and board members are there, homeowners are there. And if they see board members drinking alcohol in that water bottle or whatever, they will follow suit. They think it's okay to do it. Yeah, and what I'm getting at also is that situation where Uh, the board says to a homeowner who hasn't paid their assessments, you don't have access to the gym. You don't have access to the clubhouse until your assessments are current. Right. If they say that to one homeowner and then a board member is in that situation, they would have to, in the same circumstance, say that to that board member. Exactly. I mean, consistency here is key to, you know, I, I say here's a shield and we want to put our boards behind it. You are stepping in front of that shield and taking all the arrows if you don't properly enforce the governing documents with the very people who are responsible for that enforcement. Yeah. So last subject that I wanted to get to is uh, the topic of um, 
how a board or an association might regulate leases within a community. We actually have an episode on the Uncommon Area addressing regulation of leases. That's episode 24 for anybody who might be interested in that. But as it relates to discrimination and harassment uh, claims or potential claims, what are things that board members should consider? We frequently have board members that ask us if they can approve the leases. And we say absolutely not. They can have guidelines with their residents as to what is required, obviously. Violations of that will be breach of the governing documents. Whatever limited controls you discuss in your leasing segment uh, will certainly be applicable. And we want to be very diligent about uniform enforcement. But the reality is that if boards review a lease and say, we're not going to allow you to sign this lease because we don't think the terms are acceptable or you're leasing it for too little money or whatever, and that person is turned down and unbeknownst to the board, uh, that candidate, the tenant, uh, is subject to Section 8 funding for their lease, that discrimination lawsuit will be swift and impactful on the association. So what about a board reviewing, saying that we want to review leases and these are the terms that, and, and they are acceptable things that they, they could um, be reviewing for. The, the, they have rules about the, the duration of a lease must be a certain amount or whatever. And the board says, we want to review and confirm that you're meeting those requirements on those aspects of a lease. Um, would you advise against that? Because they might also be looking at other things, even if it's not what their stated purpose is. I think that their rules can say that a homeowner upon signature must upon signature of the lease, but before the lease is effective, can look at it to make sure that those required terms are included in that lease. And that will help the association with enforcement. The problem is that there are some boards that will look outside what those parameters are and make a decision or make a comment that will come back to haunt the association. And it is very problematic. I recognize from a governance and a business standpoint that it makes sense to want to have some control in this regard. But from a legal standpoint, the exposure to liability is pretty great. So if you're going to do it, the verbiage should say upon conclusion of a signed lease that must be submitted to the board to confirm compliance. Yeah. So there are a couple of areas where I think a board having certain parameters and regulations over leases is important, specifically as it relates to issues of short-term rentals. Right. And, um, and then even in particular, um, I'm not sure how this is addressed in the lease, but boards are interested in making sure that there is communication and compliance of the, of the, the leasing parties with the association's governing documents, rules and regulations and so forth. Um, but it would seem to me, based on what you are saying, is that it's a little bit of a minefield for a board to be walking through that. And while those are good things to pursue, they should definitely engage their attorney and make sure their attorney is signing off on, on their practices in doing that. Absolutely. And then if a matter is brought against the association, it'll be easier to get DNO coverage and to really have the carrier buy into the fact that the association was just enforcing its governing documents. Yeah. And that's really the play that we need in order to protect the association and its interests. Yeah. Well, Sandra, this has been really, really helpful. Lots of really good information. So thank you so much for You're welcome. being part of this episode. And I hope that was helpful to uh, everyone who was uh, watching or listening to this episode of The Uncommon Area. And I would encourage you to check out other episodes on other topics that we cover.